We will open our Bibles to Second Peter. And we want to read a few verses in the last chapter of the book. As you turn to it, could I welcome you also? And we are delighted to see all who have gathered in the Lord's house. That's tremendous singing unto the Lord. As our brother reminded us, we're not singing to one another. We're singing to the triune God. And that was great, joyful, God-honoring singing. And may we always keep that in mind. Never, never forget every part of worship is for the glory of the Lord, not for any man or church name or whatever. May the Lord visit us today. So we'll open here at Second Peter 3, and let's just have a word of prayer before I read and then come to the Lord's message. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for our uh, privilege and opportunity to gather again in the house of the Lord. We thank Thee for Thy presence, known already as Thy servant has led in the opening devotions of this meeting, and we rejoice indeed that we have been privileged to offer up the sacrifice of praise in song unto the living God, the triune God. And now, Lord, we come to this time of preaching, and Thou dost know our need, and we cry to Thee for help and for power, for the blessing of heaven, for the moving of the Holy Spirit. Lord, come among us, visit as we pray, bring times of refreshing over our souls. May we hear Thy voice, may we know Thy power, Settle us before Thee, settle the little ones. Lord, bring a silence over the whole gathering. We pray that Thou wilt move to that end, and Thou wilt shut us in with God, and shut out a clamoring world, and give to us ears to hear, hearts to understand those things that belong to Christ, and that are for His glory, and for the good of His church. We ask all this in His name and for His sake. Amen and amen. Second Peter 3, just a few verses I want to read with you. I'll be looking at different verses today. So we'll read from verse 10, verse number 10 of this chapter. And Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat." Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye be found of Him in peace, without spot and blameless. The Lord will bless the reading of this as word to all of our hearts. Now, over several Sunday mornings, our minds have been focused on some words that Peter uses in chapter 1, verse 4 of this is second epistle. The words are the corruption that is in the world. In the messages that I have delivered already, we have been led by the Holy Spirit to 
consider several issues that those words raise. In the first place, we know that the presence of corruption in the world, the words state very clearly, the corruption that is in the world. And so, the Word of God makes it plain that in the world of fallen humanity, for that is what is meant, there is spiritual, there is moral corruption that characterizes all that we see around us, all that we hear, all that uh, makes up this old world, uh, the world of fallen mankind. Then we considered the perception of corruption in the world. Because unlike the saved, or sorry, unlike the unsaved, the Christian possesses the knowledge or the awareness of this corruption that is in this world of humanity, and the believer is grieved and vexed by that corruption. We also moved on then to look at the promotion of corruption in this world. Peter reveals that corruption is promoted and it is spread through the teaching and the influence of false religion, so that no part of mankind is devoid of this uh, corruption that we are thinking about. However, for the Christian then, we saw in the last message, the fourth message, something about the preservation from the corruption that's in the world. That's signified back there in chapter 1 in those words where he writes about escaping or fleeing from this corruption, and that escape, that fleeing as a fugitive from sin, from the world, from corruption, is of course through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as I thought about the, the message or the service this morning, I felt I could not leave this theme without considering one other issue, namely the matter of the purging of the world from corruption. Peter essentially addresses that issue in the verses that I have read with you just a few moments ago. There is a a point coming, a point coming in time when the Lord Himself will purge or cleanse away finally and forever the corruption that is in this world. That corruption that entered into humanity at the time of man's fall and has prevailed across the face of humanity ever since. The moment will arrive when it will be finally purged away. Now, the event at which that will happen is, of course, the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At that time, the Lord will separate the saved from the unsaved. He will banish the lost in all their corruption to everlasting punishment. Consequently, the saved, the people of God, will finally be delivered from this corruption that marks humanity and that marks all society at every level, and that corruption will be no more. Furthermore, He will also purge the entire universe from the effects of man's corrupt state. He will bring the heavens and the earth to their eternal state, in which righteousness, as we have read in these verses, will prevail. Now, there is a little summary of what I want to preach to you today in this message, a summary of what these verses set before us. Peter writes of this purging 
So does the Apostle Paul, other biblical writers too. And we will be drawing in various scriptures by the Lord's help as I go through this message today. So I, I purpose today to bring all those scriptures in an overview method and manner with regard to the world being purged from its corruption. And we're going to do that under three very simple headings, but very, very important headings in terms of what they signify. Number one, the promise. And we see it here in verse number 13, where Peter writes, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. Now that promise is the same one as in verse 4, where the scoffer cries out, Where is the promise of His coming? And also in verse 9 of this chapter, where Peter writes, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. And so there's, there's a threefold usage of the word promise in this chapter, but it's the same promise that's in view. Now what is this promise that Peter mentions? Well, it is, we might say, to begin with, a redemptive promise. Because it has to do specifically in this context with the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I was just reminding the students the other day in the theology class that we should never deal with the second coming of the Lord except within the framework of redemption. Because it will be a redemptive act. It will be that great and that final application of redemption to those who are the Lord's people, including all that we are going to see today by the Lord's help. And so the promise here is a redemptive promise. And remember, it has to do with Christ, the Redeemer, and it has to do, therefore, with the only man who has ever lived, who never saw corruption. And how true that is of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Yes, He is God, He's man, He's the God-man, but He was truly man, and He never saw corruption at any time in His existence. Of course, we understand why that is so. But that's a very important little detail that I mention in passing. This promise has to do with redemption, and Christ is the Redeemer, and Christ never saw corruption. Therefore, He is able to deliver His people altogether from their corruption. And, for, and therefore, those who are His will be cleansed finally and forever from their corruption, both body and soul, at that great day. And the world in general, as we're going to see today, is going to experience this corruption or sorry, this uh, promise is going to be fulfilled with regard to the heavens and the earth as well. Now, the promise of the eternal state is really what we're looking at here. The eternal state. That state of things that will be ushered in with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that promise, therefore, teaches us very, very clearly that now as we await that great event Believers should be separate as much as possible from the corruption that's in the world, from the corruption that's caused by sin. They should seek to be separate from that. In presenting this promise of the eternal state, Peter sets before believers not only their ultimate dwelling place, but their true home. 
This will be their true home, the true home of the Christian. The new heavens and the new earth. And I want you to think about that today because it's in, in many, many ways a, a neglected subject. One that you will find very seldom being preached from various pulpits. It's hardly ever mentioned in certain places and certainly in some it is never mentioned. The new heavens and the new earth. It should fill our minds with excitement and with a sense of wonder and amazement that our God should actually purpose through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ to bring His people to a place and to a point in their experience where they will dwell in the new heavens and in the new earth and never again will they see or taste of this awful corruption that marks the world from its fall right down through until Jesus comes again. Because, my friend, as I've just said, that's the believer's true home, the new heavens and the new earth. Our Savior, in His teaching, only ever spoke of two ages. If you look at Luke 20, 34 and 35, I want you to see this. Luke 20, verse 34 and verse 35, you will find... It's true what I say. Luke 20, verse 34, Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world, and I'm just focusing on these words, so I'll move on into verse number 35. The children of this world, now verse 35, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world. Now leave aside the other details that are in these verses in case I get sidetracked and start to preach on them. I just want you to look at those terms, those two phrases, this world, that world. The word world here means age. And so the Lord is writing here or speaking here of time. And He refers to this world or this age, and He refers to that world, the world to come, the age to come. And encompassed within that age, there is everything that is going to happen with the second coming and all that ensues from it. That is what the Lord means. That age. The Apostle Paul does the very same thing in Ephesians 1, 21. I'll not turn there for time's sake, but you'll find that he does the very same thing. He writes there of this world and that world, or this age and that age. And so what we find here that the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul and others in Scripture show to us that there are but two ages, really. I know we talk about the Old Testament age and the New Testament age, and that's fine up to a point, but going from creation right down until the Lord comes back, that is one great age. That's the whole span of time. From the time that God spoke and it was done, from the time that He commanded and it stood fast, I mean the whole creation, thousands of years have rolled by. I don't know how much longer there is until the end, but here's one vast scope of time called this age. And then there is the age to come that follows on after this age has run its course and has come to a conclusion. And so we're talking here about the home that lies ahead for the believer, the promise 
of the new heavens and the new earth and the age that will usher that in, this world now in which we live is going to pass away and then there will come the other age that the Lord speaks about, that Paul writes about, that others refer to. And so the age to come is our ultimate home. Now the thought of that, the fact of that should drive us to govern our lives and live our lives according to that promise and to what's going to happen with the fulfillment of that promise. We've already seen, and I mentioned it in my opening remarks today, that this present age is marked by corruption. Over in Galatians 1 and verse number 4, you find a phrase, this present evil age. It says world in our translation, that's fine, but the word in the original also signifies age. Here you have it, this present evil age. In Ephesians 2 verse 2, the apostle writes of the course of this age. And the words there signify a certain spirit, a certain mentality, the course, that's what the word course signifies, of this age. And therefore, again, there's a thought there of evil and corruption and wickedness. They characterize this whole space of time. They mark this space of time. It's a present evil age. It's a a course of things that is against God, that's against all that is holy and true. And so these verses are sufficient to prove that there is a world system that is evil, that's imbued with a certain spirit, that's dominated by a particular mindset, that is contrary to God and truth and always will be. It is corrupt, in other words. And so it dictates, therefore, how men should behave. It would tell us how to live. It's directive however, is entirely against God, against truth, against holiness, against all that is pure. And brethren and sisters, therefore we are not to live according to the spirit, the mentality, the directive of this present evil age. And of course, God's people by grace, with all our faults and failures. And you look at biblical history and you'll find that saints always had such, do not want to live that way. They want to live lives that are pure and holy as much as the grace of God enables us to live. And so they want to live that way. And yet we're seeing here today that there's an encouragement to that end. And that is this great promise of the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state Uh, in which, as Peter writes here, there will be no corruption, no sin, no vileness, nothing that we know now, that marks the world now. It will all be gone. And in the light of that, Peter is saying to us, do not be governed by the mind and the ethos of this present evil world. And through the promise that the Lord gives us here, we are therefore assured of deliverance from this corrupt world. Here's the point. I mentioned a while ago that this is a redemptive promise. It's to be understood within the framework of the Lord's person and work as our Redeemer. That means that Jesus Christ died to save us or deliver us from this present evil age. That's Galatians 1 and 4. I bring you back to it. Just look at that verse. It says, "...who gave Himself for our sins..." There's redemption. There's the cross. 
There's the shedding of the blood. There's the atonement. There's the Lord dying who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Now, I know that is a a general statement there about the whole church of God. And it has to do specifically with deliverance from this present evil age or world. But at the same time, it's a very individualistic matter. Every believer can say, like Paul says later on in Galatians, the Lord loved me and gave Himself for me. Why? In order to deliver you, my friend. Now, will the Lord's intention be fulfilled? Will He fail in His purpose? That redemptive purpose, is it going to falter? Is it going to fall? Is this great purpose of Jesus Christ in redemption, is it going to come to fruition? Of course it will. There is not a soul for whom He died, but will be delivered finally and forever according to this redemptive promise from sin and from corruption. And you see, that means that by His death He secures our redemption from an evil world and our eventual arrival in a world of perfect moral and spiritual righteousness. And that means that redemption actually secures our separation from this present evil world. You see, the Bible teaches separation from sin, separation from uh, the world, and so on and so on. We understand that. But in teaching it, it is not saying that it's all left up to the Christian. What we've got to keep in mind is, yes, the Christian is involved. As those who are born again, we are to cooperate with the Spirit of God in our sanctification, knowing the truth spending time in prayer, escaping from evil personally and consciously and deliberately as God's grace enables us. That's all involved. But in the final analysis, it's the Lord who works in us, both to will and to do that. And that's the wonderful thing. We are not left to make it on our own. It's the Lord who died to secure this and deliver us. And therefore, His redemptive work teaches us that He will have a people who are separated from every form of evil and sin and wickedness by His grace. And of course, it's a growth, it's a spirit, it's a development. It doesn't happen all at once. It is progressive in its impact and in its application, but it does happen. 1 Peter chapter 1 If you read from verse 13 sometime, down to verse 19, it's one of the most succinct passages in the New Testament, indeed all the Bible, on the doctrine of separation or sanctification, because they are one and the same. And so he says to the Lord's people there, Be ye holy, for I am holy. He goes on to say, For as much as ye know. Now he's bringing in the argument as to why you are to be holy. While you are to separate from a fallen world and not be involved in its corruption, for as much as ye know that ye were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. So we are being shown there that the the great objective in redemption is to set a people apart 
and ultimately bring them to this perfect eternal state. And so with regard to the promise that we find here, all of I'm saying to you must be followed and understood and, and grasped by every Christian here today. This truth of this promise that's based on redemption, that, will, that is outwrought in our lives by the Spirit of God in sanctification, must govern how we live. We are not to be governed by the philosophy of a corrupt world because if we follow the world's dictation as to how we live, and of course I don't feel that any truly born-again person would even consider listening to what the world has to say. But if we follow the, Lord, the, the world's dictation, we will go all wrong. And people do backslide and get careless and get caught up with worldly things or sinful matters. And it's all because their minds are not focused. Here is why Christ died. Here's what redemption's all about. It's to set me free. It's to bring me finally home to glory where there will be no more sin, no more corruption, no more temptation even to it. And with that in mind, that's how we are to live our lives. Now, turn me with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 7 and look at verse number 31. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse number 31. And there he uh, speaks of the world, the Apostle Paul. In fact, I want you to go back to verse 29 to begin with, 1 Corinthians 7. And again, I'm just choosing out little phrases here that apply to what we're saying. Don't get taken up with the uh, details and the context. But look at verse 29, and Paul says this, The time is short. Now, the word for short in that verse means to roll up or to wind up. And so time is in the process of actually winding up or hastening to a close. So understand that. He says time is winding up. Time is rolling on until it will come to a close. Then you come to verse number 31, where it speaks of this, another phrase, the fashion of this world or this age. So we're told in verse 29, time is short, it's winding. Sometimes we say winding down. The word means winding up. It's the same idea, coming to an end and to a close. And then the word fashion. Well, the word fashion there, where it talks about the fashion of this world, is an interesting word. It's derived from the stage. I mean the stage in the theater. And in the theater setting, what happens? Well, you've got the stage, you've got something being enacted on that stage, and what Paul is saying here, therefore, is that this world is one vast stage. He talks about the fashion of this world. He's talking about how the world is, how it appears, what happens in it. And it's like a stage in a theater. In a theater, I've never been there, but in a theater, you will be aware that things are constantly changing. There's one scene, and they've got different uh, props in, the, in that scene, and then that scene passes, and then another scene comes in, and they change all the props, and, and so there's constant change. That's the word that Paul uses here. Now, that means that Paul knew what he was talking about when he wrote here about the fashion of this world, this gigantic theater in which we live. 
Things are in constant flux and change. There's nothing that's ever the same. It's always moving, always revolving, always coming to something else. That's the nature of this world. But there in 1 Corinthians, uh, that verse 7, 31, he's saying to the Christian, while we live in this world, in this vast theater, on the stage of time, we are to be careful that we do not abuse it. We are to use the time God has given to us on the stage of time, the theater of time, for His glory. We're not to be wedded to it. We're not to be tied to it. Yes, we all live in the midst of change, and our lives change, and our uh, circumstances change, and people move and get new jobs, and children grow up. That's all part of life. But then beyond that, The world is changing in terms of its corrupting influence, its devilish thoughts and activity, all designed to bring people down and destroy society and blaspheme God. That's going on all the time. And that's really what Paul is referring to in those Scriptures. While we must live here and use the world in the sense of a job, a business, a home, a family, We are not to abuse it because the world is corrupt. And you see, thank God there is provision. May I just say, before I move on here, thank God there is provision for us to live as we should. I think of our Lord on that night before He died when He prayed that great prayer, John 17, and you've heard it preached many a time and referred to many a time, What a wonderful chapter it is, but there's one petition to which I draw your attention now in John 17, verse 15, where the Lord says this, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil or the evil one. And so Christians often asked, well, sometimes maybe, maybe not often, but I've heard the question asked, why is it? that when a Christian is saved, that immediately that person is not taken home to heaven. Why are they left here? Well, here's the first answer. The Lord prayed that they'd be left here. He says, I pray not that you take your people out of the world, he means immediately, but that they would be left here for a while. That's the inference. We're left here to serve the Lord, to live for the Lord, to populate His church on earth, and to see the church developed and others brought into it. That's why we're left here. That's the reason why you're in the world, man or woman or young person. Yes, there are peripheral peripheral matters like, as I said there, your job, your business, and looking after your children. And the Bible teaches that just as clearly, that we're not to abandon those matters at all. We're not going to be like those who, who say, well, the Lord's coming back and maybe He's coming tomorrow, so I'll not do any more work. Something as silly as that has come out of many a mouth, in fact, out of many a pulpit, and it's unbiblical. Anyhow, common sense would tell you that you're just to keep on doing your work, your living your life, but remembering that your chief purpose in being here is to serve God. And then the time will come when through the merit and the mediation of your Redeemer, He will take you to this glorious 
uh, level of things where you will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's the promise. Then secondly, there is the purity. And I focus your minds now on the word new, because verse 13 speaks of that. It, it says that, according to His promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth. Now, without getting into a lot of detail, let me just say to you right up front, and uh, if you don't believe me, that's grand, but I'm telling you it's the truth. The word new here doesn't signify something that is new for the very first time, but rather it signifies that which is new in the sense of form or quality. So when Peter writes here about the new heavens and the new earth, he has in mind, he has in his words, the same heaven and the same earth as presently exist, but changed and transformed. And so here is the matter of the purity to which I refer. It's a purity that is going to characterize this present earth and the present heavens around us, all of which have been polluted and corrupted by the sin of man. But one day it will all be changed. It will all be transformed. That's what the glorious purity is all about here. Now this word new is a vital word. It's used by Christ in Revelation 21. Look at Revelation 21 verse 1, and you will know the verse, many of you. It's often read and the situation of death and bereavement and is to comfort the believer, so it's very appropriate. Revelation 21 verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And so here's John the Apostle writing of the very same matter. He says, and it's in a vision, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Isn't that wonderful? We talk about a preview. We talk about somebody getting the first sight of something, and John had that first sight long ago, 2,000 years ago, in this vision. He actually saw what nobody else has seen ever since. You know why? Because it has not yet happened. But John saw it. And he uses this same word that signifies new with regard to form or quality. And so he describes a, a, a whole new state of things. He says in verse number 5 something powerful on Revelation 21. He that sat upon the throne said, this is Christ, Behold, I make all things new. And that's the same word once again. You'll find it then in verse 4 where you are, the, the state of things in verse 4, I should say, where we get a glimpse of what this new state is going to entail to quite a degree. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. No more death, sorrow, crying, pain, for the former things are passed away. Here is the new state of things. Now, what is John dealing with here specifically? He's dealing with how the fall of man impacted humanity. It brought death. It brought decay. It brought pain. It brought suffering. It brought sorrow. And yet here's the irony of all this. The world knows there's pain and there's death and there's sorrow and, and so on. I was just reading the other day an article. Some individual who now actually believes that he has found the way to live forever. He, he means physically. 
He thinks he can live forever in this earth. Oh, the folly of man. It's a denial. It's a denial of the fall. It's a denial of the entrance of sin. It's a denial of the death that has come through sin and all the ravages that accompany death and so forth. The pain, the sorrow, the crying, the misery. It's all entailed in the fall of man. That's how it all started. That's where corruption came from. But here we've been shown these new heavens and new earth that are going to usher in a state of absolute purity. I say absolute because if you say purity, you don't need to say absolute, but I say it just to stress it. If something's pure, it's pure, and that's it. But anyhow, absolute purity. You see, it's in that sense that verse 1 says, look again at Revelation 21. It says, the first earth, sorry, the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And so some people, you see, have taught from that, but that means that the present earth and the present heavens around us, the atmospheric, the celestial heavens, uh, are going to one day vanish or pass away. That's not what it means at all. It means their condition and their state is going to pass away. Actually, here's the fascinating thing. The same two words, new, and the verb passed away, are used of the Christian's regeneration. I refer to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. Old things are passed away. Let me ask you a question. Whenever you were born again, the next moment, was it a, a whole new person that was sitting there in your seat or wherever you were? Or was it you? It was you. But the point is, something had happened. A new state had come. A new condition had been established in your heart and life and soul. And so, old things passed away. Oh, it may have been vivid and dramatic. I don't know. You may have just suddenly given up the cigarettes and the drink and those things and whatever, whatever. But you see, that passing away is the very same word as here, and the word new is the very same word. So, it's the same her earth, the same heaven, but brought into a whole new state. And here's the interesting thing. In Matthew 19, verse 28, we read these words. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of His glory. That's a reference to the coming of the Lord. He will come, He will sit on the throne of His glory, but there is referred to as the regeneration. Now, brethren and sisters, that word can't be understood in any other way but that of making something new, changing something altogether. And so the Lord's going to come from heaven and He's going to regenerate the earth. He's going to regenerate the heavens around us. That's what we've been shown. Let's go to Acts 3. Acts chapter 3 and verses 19 and 21. Acts 3 
And here we read in verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And then verse number 20 and 21, And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. And this is the second coming of the Lord again. So verse 21, Whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution. So what do we find here? Uh, the Lord's back in heaven, but He's coming again the second time. And it says here, He's going to stay in heaven. He's not coming before the time appointed. You know how people will teach what they call the any moment coming of the Lord? That the Lord could come at any second. That is a load of nonsense. He will not be leaving heaven until the appointed time. And here's what it's called until the times of restitution of all things. Now notice that. It's a very, very important reference. And the Lord remains in heaven until then, and the word for restitution means to set back in order. To set back in order. Or to set in order again. And what is, what is, what is Peter saying there? The moment will arrive when the Lord will come and He's coming, among other things, only to resurrect the, the, the people, but He's coming to set back in order what the fall put out of order. I trust you're excited about that. I trust you are thinking about that. Everything is out of order. It's out of order because of sin. But the Lord's coming back to put it into order, to set it back in order again. They're going to be restored all things to the state that they had at the very beginning when God made Adam and paradise was brought into being. But then sadly the fall came and th everything fell apart. We live in a world, men and women, that has fallen apart. Every effort of man to try to prop it up always fails. Every scheme that even at the local level, taking a council in a town or area, and they, they, they have all these schemes to help the drug addicts and help the drunkards, and, and that's all fine and up to a point. But it doesn't work. What men need is the new birth. What they need is regeneration. And what this world needs is for the Lord to come and put it all back in place. So 2 Peter 3, with regard to this purity that I'm talking about, is actually describing the regeneration of the universe. The heavens and the earth, we're told, are going to be regenerated. It will involve a number of things, two things I want to mention here. It will involve a great conflagration. Look at verse 10, 2 Peter 3 and verse number 10. And there you have those words where Peter says, uh, but the day of the Lord will come. Now remember something. Right down through these verses, he's been talking about that day. Verse 4, the scoffers question, where is the promise of His coming? And the word for coming there is the standard word in the New Testament that signifies the arrival of the King. That's what it means. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. I mentioned this. 
Three times the word promise is used. And it's the same issue, the promise of His coming. And then verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So it's not some other event, it's not some other happening that Peter is writing about here. When you get down to verse 10, it's to do with the coming that men reject, that men mock at in their statements and so on. And Peter describes why the Lord has not yet come back down through these verses. Then he gets to verse 10 and he says, let me tell you, I'm just paraphrasing it, let me tell you, it's going to come. The day of the Lord will come. Without any doubt. And so, what will happen? Verse 10, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. If you go back to verse 7 for a moment, We saw this in one of the previous messages. Verse 7 says, The heavens and the earth which are now. Taking the physical heavens, the physical earth that exists at this moment, fallen, out of order, but they're there. And we walk on the earth and we see the heavens around us to some degree. That's what Peter's writing about in verse 7. But he says this, By the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What's happening in our world? Yes, there's chaos. Things have fallen apart. But at the same time, God has His hand on it. And it's kept by God. And it's kept for a certain purpose. It's kept to the last day. It's reserved. And so don't worry about climate change. Just read Genesis 8, the last verse, where the Lord tells us that while the earth remains, day and night shall not cease. Cold and heat will be there, summer and winter, seed time and harvest. Not going to getting into that today. And here we've been told that the heavens and the earth that exist now are kept. With all their chaotic uh, situation and so on, the Lord is His hand in it all. And then the day will come when this mighty conflagration that's mentioned in verse 7, reserved unto fire at the day of judgment. And verse 10, it talks about this, the great noise, the elements melting with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. You might think that's the end of it. No, what it means is this whole idea of the purifying of all that's in the heavens and the earth by fire. You see, at the first judgment in verse 7 there, 6 and 7, the earth was purified by water. But the next time, it'll be purified by fire. And so, there is the conflagration, and then there is, of course, therefore, the purification. And so, that burning up that's mentioned is a reference, obviously, to the consuming of all the evil works that are associated with fallen men, that are the product of sin, that have brought the corruption, that scars the creation. It's all going to be burned up. That's what's burned up. It's not the earth itself, but the works that are therein. The evil works of evil men. 
They're going to come to ashes, so to speak. And God's going to purify this entire universe of ours. I only can refer here to one little line in Romans 8, but it's vitally important. Romans 8, and I've often gone over these verses and preaching at other times, but from verse 19 to verse number 22 of Romans 8, you have Paul addressing the very same issue, the creation, uh, its present state. He actually talks here about creation be uh, groaning and travailing, like verse 22, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. There is, in a, in a metaphorical way, there's Paul describing the state of the creation. It's groaning and travailing in pain. Why? Because of man's sin. And humanity's groaning and travailing in pain because of man's sin oppression. Just take the modern slavery. I mean modern in the sense of time. And it's not true. And we're hearing about it in the news all the time. Hundreds of young girls brought from various nations to our nation and sold into slavery. In the brothels, etc., etc., that's the corruption of this world. That's just one example. The corruption that's in this world. But in Romans 8, Paul refers to the earth groaning and the whole creation groaning and travailing. But in verse 21, he says this is wonderful. The creation is what he means. The creature here in our authorized version, but it could be read the creation. The creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. There you have it the bondage of corruption and the whole creation delivered from it. When? When Jesus comes again and He will bring in this whole new state, this wonderful scene that we've been considering here. There is the promise, there is the purity. But then there is the pursuit. Here's where we come into the picture. Go back in closing here today to Second uh, Peter 3, and look with me a final time at a couple of verses. Second Peter 3, and notice that three times he uses the word look. Verse 12, he says this, looking for, hasting on to the coming of the day of God. Verse 13, nevertheless we according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. Verse 14, seeing that ye look for such things. And the word for look there in those three verses is the same word in each one. There's a whole variety of words in the New Testament for look or to see. And this is one that signifies a kind of a fixed look on which you set your eyes. And so here is what I mean by the pursuit. In other words, Peter is saying here that in the light of all this, in the light of the fact of the promise that this will come one day and the purity that will be ushered in. This is the matter on which the Christian needs to set his eyes. Three times Paul, or sorry, Peter here, urges this upon us in these closing verses of this chapter. On what are you and I to set our eyes? Well, you see, this is a look of faith. Because we're looking for the new heavens and the new earth and so on taking the instances of the word look. 
on the basis that God has revealed this to us. This is coming. And you see, everything that the Christian is uh, going to experience someday, now it is unseen. Heaven itself, we don't know one thing about it really in terms of, in fact, we don't know anything about it in terms of experience. We get a few glimpses into the Bible about heaven, but very little. God has shrouded heaven from us. You know why? If God showed us the fullness of the glory of heaven, I mean the third heavens where He lives, we would be totally discontent in this world. And so He keeps it from us. So there's very, very little about the future that we really understand or know. And so that means in faith we, we focus on what God has said and we're to look in this way. And the word look, I haven't told you what it actually means specifically. It means to think towards. To think towards. So what are you and I to think about during the day? Yes, you have to think about your, your work, your children, etc. I understand that. And that's fine. And we all need to do that. Whatever we're supposed to be doing, we need to think about it. But through it all, we need to keep telling ourselves, this world is not my home. We look towards the world that is to come, the age that is yet to be, that's the essence of this look. It actually signifies to look with expectancy. It's the very same word as, as used of that man sitting at the temple gate in Acts 3. And it says there, He gave heed unto them, that is Peter and John, expecting to receive something of them. And so we look with expectancy. We're looking toward it. We're, we're focused on it. That's the essence of the look. But the end of the look, look at verse number 12. It says, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And what we read about there is the day of great crisis for this world. And so we're looking toward that. You know why? You know why? Because that is the day when the Lord is going to vindicate His He's going to clear them of all false charges. He's going, to, he's going to bring out, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, He's going to bring out the hidden things of darkness, expose it all, vindicate those who have been treated unjustly, all of that. You think about the martyrs who are in heaven, even now as I speak to you, and you learn from Revelation 6, their cry is going up at this very second. Lord, how long, how long until you avenge our blood and them that dwell in the earth. The Lord is coming. There will be a day of crisis for this world. My friend, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Because if not, Whatever time may be left, I have no idea. One thing as sure is, if the Lord tarries, and we just simply put it that way, you're going to die. And this awful day will actually find you standing for the last judgment 
and you will give an account unto God. So the wisest thing you could do is seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let us bow in prayer. And may God write his word in all of our hearts. Lord, we pray that thy spirit will take the word that we have thought about and considered, that he will bring it home, that he will write it on every mind, that he will use it this day to encourage the saints, to enlighten their minds, and use it to deal with those who are not thine. In warning that they might flee from the wrath to come. Hear and answer prayer. Be with us now, we pray. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit, be with all thy people, both this day and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.